Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 512 to 623, Why Did Christ Die? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy. So we're covering uh, paragraph 512 through 623, 512 through 623. Last week, as you recall, we, we went over the sections that deal with who Christ is and why he became flesh, why the incarnation happened. Sort of a summary of who Jesus is. In this section, what we're going to cover is the life of Christ um, up into the resurrection, and then next week we'll cover the, the, the burial of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, um, and a few other, few other little points. So we begin in 512 with a description of the life of Christ. Of Christ, we refer to the events of Christ's life as mysteries. So we're familiar with that term from the Rosary that we use mysteries to describe the events of Christ's life, primarily because of the mystery of who Jesus Christ is. This God-Man, um, He has a divine nature. He has a human nature. He's a divine person, fully human. So all of these events of Christ's life are, in a sense, a mystery because a divine person, the second person of the Trinity, is involved. And, of course, in most of those events, we also see the first person and the third person involved as well. So that's why we use the word mysteries to describe the events of Christ's life, is because they're not just events of a human life, but they're also um, eternal events in some ways because this divine person is involved. There's some definitions in 512 which are, are very helpful. First is the word incarnation. Now, we used that quite a bit last week. Um, we also have the, word pas- the phrase paschal mystery. And with the incarnation, Paschal mystery is a very common word that we hear. We might call it um, Catholicese, you know, a, a word that we frequently use but which is often not defined for us. Um, there's also another phrase that we should also kind of identify is the hidden years, the hidden years, or sometimes the catechism calls it the hidden life. So the catechism in that paragraph there defines the incarnation as the conception and birth of Christ. So when we talk about the events of Christ's incarnation, it's about his conception and his birth. So when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and then also his birth. The phrase Paschal Mystery describes the passion, crucifixion, death, 
burial, descent into hell, resurrection, and ascension. So we can say that the incarnation is about the annunciation and the nativity. The paschal mystery is everything really from we might what we celebrate at Palm Sunday to the to the ascension. So everything dealing with Christ's suffering to his um, ascension to the right hand of the Father is what we call the Paschal Mysteries. And then the hidden years are those, is that time after the Incarnation when we hear very little about Christ. Probably the one event is him being lost in the temple. So when he was a, a young boy and a young man growing up, working with Joseph in Nazareth. Another um, phrase also is what we call his public years, life, and sometimes it's public work. That would be the point from when he comes from his hidden years. So really the, the baptism of the Lord. It's when he comes and he starts his public ministry, his public work. And that goes until the beginning of the Paschal Mystery, when that begins, which is his entrance into Jerusalem. So, incarnation, hidden years, public years, Paschal Mystery. The next section deals with how all of the mysteries, all of the events of Christ's life, are somehow mysteriously united to each other. We read in paragraph 515, His humanity appeared as a sacrament, that is, a sign, the sign and instrument of his divinity and of the salvation he brings. What was visible in his earthly life leads to the invisible mystery of his divine sonship and redemptive mission. So all that we see him doing throughout his life reveals something about his divinity. It is like a sacrament. His human nature is, and his human life is a sacrament of his divinity. But also, all that he does is pointing to his divine sonship and to his redemptive mission. So if you remember last week, as we review, it's, it's hard not to review, we had our Greek ichthus, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior. Jesus indicates his human nature. Christus, his divine nature, but his um, divine mission, this redemptive mission that he has. He's a divine person, the Son of God, and as Lord, he shares in the divine substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is equally God. Um, he is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
But the idea that his human nature, Jesus, reveals his divine mission, Christ. So all of the things about his life is revealing his mission. In the next three paragraphs, 516 through 518, we can also say that all of the mysteries of Christ's life, all the events of Christ's life, share in three R's, three R's. So, you know, they say that there is um, three R's in Southern Ohio, reading, writing, and Route 23. Also, there are these three R's, which are characteristic of all of the mysteries of Christ's life. First of all, they are a revelation. All of the mysteries of Christ's life reveal who Jesus is, but also they reveal the Father. They point to the Father. All he says and does, his silence and his sufferings, these are all a revelation. So we say that Jesus is the fullness of revelation. We say that that he is in his person the fullness of revelation. But that also all that he said and all that he does is a revelation. Which is why John would say that all that Christ revealed, I mean, it would take all the books of the world to kind of contain all of it. Because he is a, in his person this revelation. We can't really contain a person in a book. Number two, all of the events of Christ's life are a mystery of redemption. Redemption. That's the second R. Redemption comes to us above all through the blood of his cross. But already in his incarnation, in his hidden life, in his words and and in his miracles and in his resurrection, it is about our redemption, our salvation. This particular paragraph is important because Throughout this section on the mysteries of Christ's life, there is um, a constant reference to the liturgy. So to the celebrations or the seasons that commemorate the different parts and aspects of Christ's life. It's almost impossible to celebrate or to to teach about the um, life of Christ without automatically referencing the liturgy. Because it is in the liturgy that the mysteries of Christ's life um, continue. These eternal events are made present. When we think of the liturgy, we think of the crucifixion, the passion and death of Christ, or the paschal mystery larger, as being present. So at the Mass, we know that the Mass is a sacrifice the sacrifice of Christ on the cross made present. But because Jesus Christ is a divine person, all of the events of his life are connected to that apex of his life, the Paschal Mystery. So if the Paschal Mystery is present at the liturgy, then all of the events of Christ's life, all of the mysteries of Christ's life are somehow present.
They're mysteriously present. So we can say that at the Mass, we are present at the Paschal Mysteries as Christ dies for us and as he rises from the dead. But in a way, we're also present at the very moment of the Incarnation, the moment of his birth. And so that's why a lot of the different Masses have a focus. So Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. We focus on that particular mystery that's made present at the liturgy. That's why I think this section, this larger section of the Catechism, is a very important section for spiritual reading, for meditation, especially as we go into the different um, um, holy days and different seasons of the year. So, for instance, when we are entering into Advent, it is perhaps good to talk about the mysteries associated with the incarnation of Christ. Or, if we're going into um, Holy Week to read the things about the Paschal Mystery. The third R that describes all of the mysteries of Christ's life is that they are mysteries of recapitulation. Recapitulation. Christ's whole life is a mystery of recapitulation. All Jesus did, said, and suffered had for its aim restoring fallen man to his original vocation. So Christ takes on human nature to undo what Adam has done with it. And so Christ endures being a child, being an infant, to make infancy, to make childhood as it should have been before the fall. Just one example. So, so redemp- revelation, redemption, and recapitulation. The next three paragraphs, 519 through 521, talk about how we share in the mysteries of Christ's life. We do so, first of all, that the mysteries, all these events of Christ's life, are for us. Christ did these things, he said these things, he experienced these things for us, not just as a collective us, but for each of us. This is especially fruitful meditation, I think, on the cross, that Christ endures the passion and death with each one of us in mind. Because he is a divine person, he has each one of us in mind as he experiences those things. Number two, there is a connection. We share in the mysteries of Christ because they are a model for us. They are a model for us. Christ gives us a model of suffering. He gives us a model of work. He gives us a model of friendship. He gives us a model of being an obedient child. 521, um, we also are in communion with the mysteries of Christ because Christ enables us to live in him 
all that he himself lived, and he lives it in us. This is a great mystery, but because of our unity with Christ in the sacraments, we are, in a sense, living his mysteries, and he lives his mysteries through us. I think this is a powerful example of this is, of course, the what we profess with the Angelus, the Angelus prayer. The Angelus prayer is not just something to do at 6 and noon and 6 because we don't have anything to do at 6 and noon and 6. It is, in a sense, a reminder that at every moment the incarnation is somehow present. That by the Holy Spirit and Mary's yes, Christ is present. We're living the Annunciation, the event of the Incarnation, we're living that at every moment because of our union with Christ. So the mysteries are being lived here and now in our lives. Christ is living them through us and we're living them through him. So that's, that's a powerful mystery, but that's really... Um, I mean, that paragraph, if we could take that one seriously, 521, and live our lives attentive to what we're doing and recognizing that it's somehow a reenactment or a a making present of Christ's life, some event in Christ's life, um, you know, that, that that is the Christian life is recognizing that we're living every moment as if it is a mystery of Christ's life. He's living it through us. So 521, maybe that's it's a little deep to put, you know, on a piece of paper and tape to our mirror in the morning, but it's, dirt, it's certainly something worth living by. The mis- then we go into the mysteries of Jesus' infancy, the incarnation, and the hidden years. So after the catechism does an intro to what these events or these mysteries mean, then he goes into the, the, the first two groups. He, the catechism combines them, the mysteries of the incarnation and the mysteries of the hidden years. Now, as I said, I'll repeat, is these individual paragraphs are worth rereading annually as we prepare to kind of remember, in particular, these groups of mysteries in their corresponding seasons. So, in the first couple paragraphs, we have the preparation for Christ's coming and a remembrance that we, re- that we celebrate, we kind of focus on the presence of the mysteries leading up to Christ's incarnation in the season of Advent. Then we have the Christmas mystery, paragraph 525, a good little reflection, and 526, a good little reflection for us to read right before Christmas. Then the mysteries of Jesus' infancy, which includes his circumcision. And then the epiphany, the manifestation of Jesus as Messiah. There are three points worth noting about the epiphany. 
that the Magi represent something. They represent three important things. First of all, in the Magi, representatives of the neighboring pagan religions, the gospel sees the first fruits of the nations who welcome the good news of salvation. So the epiphany is important because it recognizes what's at the heart of Christ's incarnation and mission, and that is that the good news might go to all the nations, all of the pagan nations. Even those 158 tribes in the Amazon that have had no human contact. Number two, the Magi's coming to Jerusalem um, in order to pay homage to the king of the Jews show that they seek in Israel in the messianic light of the star of David, the one who will be king of the nations. So because they come seeking the king of the Jews, they look, of course, as God has revealed himself through the Jews, for the one who will be the king of all nations. And then finally, their coming, the Magi's coming, means that pagans can discover Jesus and worship him as the Son of God and Savior of the world only by turning toward the Jews and receiving from them the messianic promise as contained in the Old Testament. So we can't dismiss the Old Testament and the Jewish origins. That is the be- that is what is at the basis of coming to a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Finally, although I said there were only three points, I'll make a fourth point. The epiphany shows that the full number of the nations now takes its place in the family of the patriarchs. So in the church, all nations and Israel are united in Christ. In the church. Paragraph 529 um, talks about the presentation of Jesus in the temple. 530, the flight into Egypt. Then there are four paragraphs on the hidden years of Christ that even though we don't know anything, what he was doing in Nazareth with Mary and Joseph, what happened to Joseph, we know that he worked, that he learned, and that he was obedient. The Gospels tell us this much. The hidden years are somewhat broken by the finding of Jesus in the temple, which is a glimpse of the mystery of his mission and of his divine sonship. Then we go into um, the mysteries of the public life of Jesus. So we've gone through the incarnation and the hidden years. Now these public years, the public life. It begins with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And there's a lot which is mentioned. Um, First of all, we remember the baptism of the Lord in our celebration of the Epiphany. So the Epiphany is not just about the Magi. It's also 
includes in some ways a reference to Christ's baptism, where he makes himself known. The baptism is a public inauguration, we might say, or acceptance by Christ of his mission as God's suffering servant. In it, of course, we see that the Father's voice recognizes Christ as his beloved Son. And, of course, we see the Holy Spirit visibly come upon him in the form of a dove. It is, in a sense, his anointing as priest, prophet, and king. The baptism is important Because through our baptism, the Christian is sacramentally assimilated to Jesus, who in his own baptism anticipates his death and resurrection. The Christian must enter into the mystery of humble self-abasement and repentance. So there is this mysterious unity between the baptism of Christ, a baptism which he didn't need to go through because he was free from sin, and our own baptism, a baptism which is necessary because of original sin. And it is in our baptism that we are, and at our baptism, and I would say at at any baptism we go to, that we're especially mysteriously present at the baptism of Christ. His baptism, in a sense, is made present especially in the sacrament of baptism. The next point in Christ's public life is the temptations, the time in the desert and the temptations. This is an example, if you remember the three R's, redemption, uh, recapitulation, and the other third R was, anyone know that one? Revelation, good, good. She gets the A for the day. The, um, the temptations are a good example of the recapitulation. So Jesus' rejection of Satan, of the temptation that Satan offers, recapitulates the temptation of Adam. So as Adam was tempted in the garden and gave in, Christ in the desert is tempted and says no, and he undoes then that temptation, the temptation of Adam. So that's sort of how this recapitulation, how the mysteries of Christ's life undoes um, the fall of human nature. It also, the, the temptations of Christ, reveal his victory. Jesus' victory over the tempter in the desert anticipates the victory of the passion, the supreme act of obedience of his filial work and his filial love for the Father. So as we mentioned, the the cross is, and, and we can say it the whole Paschal mystery, but the cross especially is the high point of Christ's life. Everything is directed to it and somehow united. So everything is pointing to that, preparing for that, and all that comes after it um, is an effect of that. 
it is really, um, you know, his hour, which he often refers in the Gospel of John. His triumph is at the cross. So the temptations are already pointing. They're mysteriously united to the cross in anticipation. The temptations reveal that Christ is the Son of the Father. And then, of course, we're reminded that it is, especially in the season of Lent, that we mysteriously focus on the mystery of Christ's temptations. Then there is a summary of what Christ preached and did in those public years. So 541 and 542 talks about the kingdom that Christ is proclaiming. That is at the heart of his message. It is a kingdom of heaven on earth. For 542, but above all, in the great paschal mystery, his death on the cross and his resurrection, he would accomplish the coming of his kingdom. So his preaching is preparing for the coming of the kingdom, which happens in the paschal mysteries, the death and resurrection of Christ. So again, we see how his public life, what he's saying and doing, is united to the paschal mystery. So what was it, what were the elements of this proclamation of the kingdom of God? Well, there are about four, I think, we can take from the next couple paragraphs. First, everyone is called to enter the kingdom. With that, in order to enter it, one must first accept Christ's words. There is a sense of surrendering to Christ, an acceptance of his word. This section, I think, is particularly important because all of us have to render account of the faith. We have to proclaim the kingdom. We have to proclaim the gospel, the good news. So I think focusing on these few paragraphs on the kingdom kind of help us to understand What are the elements of Jesus' preaching? So, everyone is called to enter the kingdom, and to enter it we must accept Jesus. Number two, the kingdom belongs to the poor and the lowly, which means those who have accepted it with humble hearts. So, you know, um, we, we might be tempted at times, to say the church is just for the economic poor and the socially lowly or marginalized. Especially the readings this Sunday about the, uh, um, the um, tax collector and, and the first reading from Sirach, there is a sense of the Lord's fondness for the poor and the lowly. But the, 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 the paragraph makes clear that, you know, Christ has not merely, has not merely, has not done what he has done or established the church or proclaimed the kingdom 
just to kind of cheer up the uh, marginalized or the economically disadvantaged. Um, The kingdom belongs to the poor and lowly, which means those who have accepted it with a humble heart. So, of course, there are many poor people, just as there are even more rich people who do not accept the gospel with a humble heart, who do not accept the kingdom with a humble heart. And that, I think, is the key to help us to deal with maybe the problem of rejecting the faith or difficulty in witnessing to others, is that it's not just an acceptance of a message, but it's an acceptance of a message with a humble heart, with a heart that's in need. That's why the poor, the economic poor, and the lowly, the, the outcast, are often so receptive, is because they, need, they recognize their need. They have been made low. They have been made desperate. And so their heart is humbled. Number three, uh, Jesus invites sinners to the table of the kingdom. He invites them to a conversion without which one cannot enter the kingdom. So it's not just that he hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors because they have the best parties but because um, they are converting. Number four, Jesus' invitation to enter his kingdom comes in the form of parables, a characteristic feature of his teaching. They kind of help us to make a radical choice. These sort of stories, these images that strike us. One wonders at times um, if they're made-up stories or if they're actually things that he observed. Then the Lord doesn't just preach, but there are also accompanying signs. 547 through 550, I think, are very, very important paragraphs, also in the work of evangelization. The role of signs, of signs of power in Christ's preaching. That his words accompany, are, are often accompanied by mighty works and wonders and signs. The signs worked by Jesus, so the miracles, the exorcisms that happened, the healings, the signs worked by Jesus attest that the Father has sent him and they invite belief in him. But his miracles can also be an occasion for offense. They are not intended to satisfy people's curiosity or desire for magic. So the miracles of Christ are real. They happen. They're there for two purposes. One, to in a sense, give credibility to Christ that he is the Son of the Father, and second, to invite belief in him. So those are the two two ends of a miracle, is that they reveal that the Father is behind Christ, and they invite belief in Christ. 
But his miracles, this is kind of the third point about the miracles then. So the first is that they reveal the connection of the Son to the Father, and they invite belief in Jesus. The third is that the miracles must not be there. They're not intended to satisfy people's curiosity or entertain them. A fourth point about the miracles, nevertheless, he did not come to abolish all evils here below, but to free men from the gravest slavery sin, which thwarts them in their vocation as God's sons and causes all forms of human bondage. So the fourth point about Christ's miracle that we should make, that the Catechism makes, is that there's this mystery There are some people that he doesn't heal. There are probably scads and scads of people that he didn't heal. Um, It was probably, um, you know, I mean, I don't know what the ratio is, but if you count up all of the people that we hear were healed by him, it certainly is not more than 1% of the population at the time of Christ in the Holy Land. So there were many, many who were not healed. Well, why? Well, we don't know the mystery of divine will. There is this problem of evil. This is another paragraph that kind of touches upon the problem of evil and suffering. Paragraph 549. But what it does remind us is that um, Christ's primary miracle, the miracle that he has really come to work, is to free us from the gravest slavery, which is of sin. He's come to free us from sin. That is the great miracle, the great work of liberation, which he is proclaiming. And then 550 also touches upon the exorcisms, that Christ, in order to show his victory over Satan, he does these exorcisms. He delivers people from demons. Again, the miracles point to the Paschal mystery, the ultimate victory. In 551, we have, um, in the next couple paragraphs, the Lord's um, treatment or the, how the Lord institutes the apostles, the twelve apostles, and especially Peter, and the power of the key which he gives them, which is to govern the household of God, the church, and to bind and loose from sin, to absolve sin, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, and to make disciplinary decisions in the church. So, The power, if you want a definition of the the power to bind and loose. So the power of the keys, the catechism says, designates this authority to govern the house of God. The power to bind and loose entails three things. The authority to absolve sin, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, and to make disciplinary decisions in the church. So the catechism makes a distinction between the two.
It's noted that only through Peter, only to Peter, does the Lord specifically entrust the keys of the kingdom, the powers of the key. The power to bind and loose is given to all of the apostles, all twelve. Now, we'll talk about that more when we cover the church. There's a specific section on um, the keys in that part. Then the Catechism treats the transfiguration, which again, in paragraph 555, points to the cross. It also, in some ways, points to the resurrection. I think these paragraphs are nice to read um, in anticipation. Maybe those Sundays where we read about the Transfiguration, which we do um, every year in Lent. And then also there is the Feast of the Transfiguration in August. But uh, paragraph 556 makes an interesting little point. Um, On the threshold of the public life of Christ, there was the baptism where the Father recognizes the Son. On the threshold of the Passover, the transfiguration happens. Jesus' baptism proclaims the mystery of the first regeneration, namely our own baptism. The transfiguration is a sacrament of the second regeneration, namely our resurrection, our share in the resurrection, our bodily resurrection. We have Jesus' ascent into Jerusalem, his messianic entrance into Jerusalem, which we especially celebrate on Palm Sunday. We especially remember on Palm Sunday. Now, um, we've got some time to um, go over the next section, which is precisely the first part of the Paschal Mystery, the first two parts, the Passion and Crucifixion and Death. So, a couple intro points is that um, God's saving plan was accomplished once and for all by the redemptive death of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' suffering took their historical concrete form in his rejection by the Jewish leadership and by those Gentiles who mocked him. Um, So this sort of sets up the structure. The first is, why was Jesus killed? Not just in the sense of what what needed to happen for our salvation, but in the historical question, why did they kill this man? Why did they kill him? That's the first question. The second question is, why was this necessary for our salvation? So the, the first Um, couple, I would say, 20 or so paragraphs deal with that first question, the historical question. Um, And it really boils down to three things. 
the leadership at that time, and we want to make sure the catechism is very clear on this and emphasizes this, that first of all, not all the Jews at the time of Christ wanted to see him die, and especially not all of them at that time were responsible for his death, only those leaders. And then certainly, most especially, the Jews of all time are not responsible for the death of Christ. So the catechism is very emphatic on those points. Um, And it's going to hit those a couple times throughout. So when there was conflict, though, between Christ and the Jewish leadership... And the Catechism summarizes these in three points. There were three grounds for why the Jewish leadership was upset with Christ. The first had to deal with the submission to the whole law. Both the written commandments in the Mosaic Law and the Pharisees' own interpretation, the oral tradition which was much more um, than what had been revealed to Moses. So the first deals with the law. The second ground of conflict was the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem as a holy place where God's presence dwelled. So the second point is on the temple. And then the third point is on the faith in the one God whose glory no one can share. Now, the catechism hits each of those three grounds of conflict. And it lays out, first of all, what Christ said about each of those grounds and how he respected um, the basic Jewish understanding. But how in each of those he broke with the Jewish establishment. In, this, in these sections, then, what we, what we see is, you know, if the Jewish leaders really believed what they taught and were sincere about it and really understood what Jesus was saying, they would kill him. They would, they would want to kill him. They would need to kill him. Because the claims that he was making... Although he was calm and respectful and recognized what was good, he also did something radically different and called for something radically different, especially on the last point on, um, on God, on recognizing, on recognizing the one God. So first of all, Jesus and the law. Jesus clearly says that he is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And he criticizes the Pharisees' oral tradition. And he begins to kind of zero in even on the Mosaic, the Mosaic um, law. So first, he claims to be the fulfillment of the law outright. He just says, I'm the fulfillment of the law. He's come to fulfill the law. Second, he criticizes the Pharisees' oral tradition of the law. Third, 
he makes clear that the perfect fulfillment of the law could be the work of none but the divine legislator. You can't fulfill the Mosaic law. You can't live it perfectly. But there is one who can. The divine person, Jesus Christ. The legislator of the law. People recognize his authority, but not in the sense that he was a very good rhetorician, you know, and that he spoke clearly and calmly and that he um, knew everything. He, when, when they were shocked by his authority, it was that he was speaking not as an interpreter like the rabbis, but as the legislator, as the one who made the law. He spoke with that kind of authority. We especially see this in his approach to the dietary laws and to the laws on the Sabbath, where he clearly is teaching contrary to the understanding that they had of the Mosaic law. As one who has written the law, not as one who interprets the law. And so rightly, the Jewish leadership should be upset with him. Second, in regards to the temple, it was clear that the Lord honored the temple. Just as he honored the law, he followed the law. He honored the temple. He went up the pilgrimage to worship. He recognized it as a privileged place and encounter. But it's clear in his prophetic words that he recognizes himself as the ultimate temple the ultimate one whom the Father comes to dwell, resides, that the divine being comes to, to reside in. He follows the customs of the temple, but he recognizes that ultimately, and he teaches ultimately that he is the temple, that his body, his human nature, united to the divine, is this ultimate temple that will be destroyed, but in three days will rise. So clearly, even though he's very respectful of the temple, he's putting priority upon himself. So both that he um, recognizes himself as the legislator of the law and as the ultimate temple then sets up this third problem, which is really the heart of the issue. Jesus clearly teaches and demonstrates that he is God, that he is a divine person. His role in the redemption of sin and his ability to forgive sin, you know, when he tells people that their sins are forgiven, only God can forgive sins. This is a divine claim that he makes. Um, He also at times will refer to himself as I am by the very divine name. Before Abraham was, I am. And even I and the Father are one. It is clear that he recognizes himself as divine. 
And so, with these three um, kind of points of dispute, so that he is the legislator of the law, that he is the temple, and that he is divine, the Jewish leadership rightly should be scandalized by Christ and by his claim. Now, if they were humble of heart, they would accept this. Um, But as those who uphold the Jewish tradition, they rightly should be shocked by what he says. So then he is... Then we go into the trial, which is paragraph 595. We are reminded that there were Jews who were disciples of Christ, all 12 apostles we know, but even those in the Jewish leadership who were followers of Christ. We're reminded in 597 that Jews at the time of Christ and the Jews now are not collectively responsible for Jesus' death. Even the personal sin of the participants is known to God alone. So Judas's responsibility, his guilt, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, Only God knows their guilt. But in 598, we're reminded that all sinners are the authors of Christ's passion. If we want to look for someone to blame, we blame ourselves. Because it is because of our sins that Christ died. In the next couple paragraphs, then, we kind of close up on the passion, but in, in addition, the catechism gives us a summary of why Christ died. Now, it's very interesting in this section is um, it doesn't, so usually there are about four or five different theories, not theories, but models or examples or analogies or images that we use to describe why the death of Christ was necessary, why the death of the Son of God was necessary for our salvation, for our freedom from sin. Um, And probably in older versions of the Catechism, they would have gone through these different models. But in the Catechism, they're all kind of interconnected, which I think is a better approach. First of all, St. Paul in his letters is really the source of all of our models of explaining why Christ died, why he has died for us. Um, But Paul intermingles all of those together. It's to help us to remember that one single analogy or one single explanation for why Jesus has died for us is not sufficient. That all of these kind of help us to give a full image of what has happened. So what we're going to do is um, we'll start on this section, but we'll probably finish it um, next week when we cover the resurrection. Um, But in 599 and 600, um, we are proposed, you know, it is proposed to us that Jesus was handed over according to the definite plan of God. So this is part of divine providence. Jesus' violent death was not the result of a chance and an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances, but is part of the mystery of God's plan. 
599 and 600 are another two good paragraphs to help us to wrestle with the problem of evil and suffering. So the death of Christ is a part of divine providence. It's not a sheer accident. 600, to God, all moments of time are present in their immediacy. When, therefore, he establishes his eternal plan of predestination, he includes in it each person's free response to his grace. For the sake of accomplishing this plan of salvation, God permitted the acts that flowed from people's blindness. And so all of those people who were involved in the death of Christ, um, the Father used them for his plan even in their ignorance and in their free response, even in their sin, the Father was able to use that. It is this mystery that even in our sin and the sins of others, um, the Lord's plan is somehow revealed and somehow made, made present, that he's able to incorporate these things. 601, the scriptures have foretold the divine plan of salvation through the putting to death of the righteous one, my servant, as a mystery of universal redemption. So the scriptures anticipate and point to the death of Christ as something important and something necessary. In 602 and 603, we hear that um, God, in some ways, made Christ to be sin. Now, we know that Christ has not committed any sin, nor is he affected by original sin. But he has become human and taken on our human nature, and as it was to, in a sense, take on our sin, a sin which was, is punishable by death. 602 reminds us, because there is this, this notion where we want to kind of get out of a, a model that's called penal substitution, penal substitution, that someone needed to die for sin. And so, you know, someone needed to be punished for this. Sin is punishable by death. God has made Christ to be sin, even though he knew no sin in order to take on the punishments for sin. So um, 602 and 603 kind of explains, um, in this sense, how Christ became sin, took on our sins, in order to free us um, from sin and to free us from the punishment for sin. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.